Good evening. I'm Alex Mosed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So we've got a few good topics today. Uh, the first one runs near and dear to my heart, called Google is Greedy. We've spoken many, many times on the show how uh, platforms, platform conglomerates, large tech monopolies, who do they take advantage of? It's not the consumer, it's the producer. Producers are customers, uh, and one example of producers would be websites on Google search. And just yesterday, I was at the New York Times Dealbook conference, and I was talking about how um, Expedia was mentioned by, I think, the assistant attorney general in the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. Uh, we were talking about this fellow and, and how he wasn't really on the mark. He wasn't seeing that producers uh, like Expedia are customers. And why would Expedia be considered a customer of Google? Oh, that's right, because they spend billions and billions of dollars on ads. Why do they have to spend billions and billions of dollars on ads? Because Google is taking advantage of its producers in the sense that they're cramming down and Expedia in the search result rankings, um, essentially forcing them to buy ads to stay relevant, right? So the organic traffic that Google used to be sending to its producers' websites, um, Google is now forcing them to buy ads. Why are they doing that? Well, they have a monopoly that is maturing. And how do you continue to squeeze profit out of a maturing monopoly, not just profit, but growth. Well, that means you've got to squeeze your suppliers. And that's exactly what we're seeing. This is exactly where the government should be stepping in to help promote a more competitive landscape, right? I mean, because Google has all the power. They're now a dominant monopoly platform conglomerate. And what power does an Expedia have? Even though Expedia is a big company, um, they, on their own, don't have enough power. And Expedia isn't alone. We've spoken on the show in the past about, we've chronicled how um, the CEO of TripAdvisor, CEO of Yelp, have not only come out and said that Google is doing the same exact thing to them, but Google is actually copying their local uh, you know, provider content and then serving that up as their own content. And, 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 and so you'll see now Google, similarly to an Amazon, compete in a linear way, right? Where Google is offering their own local search results or uh, travel options, right? Uh, competing with Expedia directly, not just forcing them to buy ads and be greedy. So it's, it's a multi-pronged approach to squeeze value, to, to, to take the value directly to Google, or to put more pressure on their suppliers and their producers. And so we've seen that today in the results. We're seeing today um, Expedia and TripAdvisor came out with their earnings. Expedia is down 27%. Oh. And um, TripAdvisor is also down more than 20%. Both of them are blaming a decrease in Google search results. They missed big time. That's why they're down by over, they just lost over a fifth some, some in the, in, or, or over a fourth of their market cap gone. Why is that happening? Well, you're not going to find it in that article. We're going to go to the Twitter sphere. Here we go. Modest proposal. 
Helping us out. Look at this chart. Oh my lord. Yikes. What is this chart showing us? Okay. Black line at the top is zero click search percentage. That means you punch something into Google and you look at the results, but you don't click on anything. Very bad news for Google that this line continues to go up. What is the blue line in the middle that is going down? Organic click through rate. That means I go and search for stuff. I now click on an organic result called Expedia or TripAdvisor or Yelp. Paid click-through rate is the bottom line, pink line. And that is only going up. And look at how much this has gone up. This has gone from 3.3% in January of 2016 to over 11% in June of 2019. Three and a half years, this thing almost 4X'd, more than three, basically three, at least 3X'd. I mean, that is a massive, right? That's, that's Google's primary, primary revenue stream. How many people are clicking on ads? So you can see that they are turning the screws on their website producers. And you're seeing it in their earnings. And now those companies are trying to diversify away from Google. But what are you going to do? There's really not much that you can do. This is a problem. And uh, the only other interesting point to this is that Yelp uh, released earnings today and they're up 10%. Which, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, kind of bizarre how Yelp is up 10 <laughs> I wonder if uh, if Google's trying to balance out and pick favorites amongst their producers and who they help and uh, who they take advantage of. It dropped 8% in the regular session and then it went up 11% after hours. So net-net, it's up a little bit. Um, but the point is, I think that we're only going to see more harm coming to these platform companies. Now, the interesting thing is if you think about Platt, the platform ETF. And you'd say, all these companies are in Plat, by the way. So you have Expedia in there, Yelp in there, TripAdvisor in there. Um, and you see Google also obviously in there, tightening the screws at the expense of other platform companies. Now, that is not the only, there are plenty of linear other losers that have relied on Google search results continue to rely on Google search results. Um, that could also be one of the reasons why when we were highlighting Wayfair yesterday, they were just down big time um, after their earnings results. Linear uh, furniture e-commerce company. And um, uh, they were down uh, yesterday after they came out. They up. A little bit today, less than a percent. But um, I think there's going to be a bunch of losers as a result of this. And you see kind of platforms eating other platforms. But at the same time, the big tech monopoly platforms are eating everything. Um, and that's where the government needs to step in because you really don't have any mechanism to stop a Google search from doing this. Um, 
And breaking up Google doesn't solve this problem. If you say, hey, Google, you can't own YouTube, Google will actually probably just need to put the screws on the websites even more so than if they didn't have the conglomerate because the conglomerate and, and the rising stars and the other you know, rising kind of platform uh, businesses that we've, we've outlined for Google uh, should only help it, right? And, and ease some of the tension to show growth and to uh, and, and find new businesses that will have a lot of growth and eventually be profitable to take the burden off of Google search. You've obviously seen here now the burden that Google search has taken on to continue to crank out profits at the expense of producers, both platform producers and linear producers. Um, and so what does the government need to do? The gov- what the government needs to do is make sure that Google is providing transparency around changing a search algorithm and then having to provide context around why they're changing that search algorithm. And basically, if they had to provide transparency, if the FTC were to outline guidelines for when it is appropriate or inappropriate to change or how to change the search search algorithm, right? And you were to actually then spot check the results and you say, here is search algorithm as of six months ago, and then you can have you can have ten thousand different spot check sample searches, right? You put in keywords just like you're tracking a inflation basket, right? I've got a hundred ba- uh, hundred goods in a basket, and I'm going to track the prices of how these things go up or down over the period of time. I've got ten thousand keyword searches. It could be around flights. It could be around travel. It could be around local search listings. Google doesn't need to know what those ten thousand keywords are. The FTC tracks what websites are coming up and in what order, and then can easily now track and say, okay, um, how much screen real estate is given to the Google proprietary listings? How much screen real estate is given to the third-party players? Um, How much screen real estate is given to the ads? And so on and so forth. And, um, And then they can have Google try to explain themselves. What would happen if they had set this structure up right now is, Google would be in a pickle, and it's pretty evident that they have absolutely changed their algorithm. They've absolutely changed the screen real estate on search to favor itself or force people to buy ads. You're seeing that in the earnings results of these companies. And then the FTC can take action and say, well, this is inappropriate. You are actually uh, putting your customers, these are producers, at a disadvantage. And you are a monopoly because, oh, where does 80 plus percent of their search traffic come from? Oh, it's Google. So you're a monopoly. You can't just turn the screws on these people unless you have a pretty good reason. You've now changed the rules um, just arbitrarily because you clearly want more profit. And yeah, that's not okay. We're going to find the hell out of you. And okay, that's a potential solution. Um, But no one is touching this. It's like I'm at this conference yesterday. And they just talk about privacy and they talk about, do consumers have choice? It's a joke. Um, I mean, it doesn't get any clearer. These guys, these, these, these players are losing billions of dollars in value. And guess where it's going? Um, so anyway, not going to change anytime soon, given the rhetoric that's coming out of the Department of Justice and the FTC. On a positive note. Or not a positive note. I guess it's kind of a confusing note, but it's kind of an interesting note. Basically, there's a report here that I'm in the process of pulling up 
which says that um, TikTok is being investigated by the government. U.S. opens national security investigation into TikTok. National Security Review of TikTok owner Beijing ByteDance. So they bought this company called Musical.ly. It's now called TikTok. ByteDance is the largest private tech company in the world, worth over $80 billion, Chinese company. They have TikTok-esque content platforms in China um, and, and, and other platforms. It's actually, it's actually already in platform conglomerate status. It says here about 60% of TikTok's 26.5 million monthly active users in the United States are between the ages of 16 and 24. So what you say to yourself is, will the U.S. government engage in technology protectionism? Uh, will the U.S. government make it harder for TikTok to operate? And uh, do I think that this is a bad thing? Hmm. No, I don't. If you look at what China has done to U.S. tech companies, they've done this to the nth degree. I mean, it, you, they're completely off the chart. They're off the spectrum. The spectrum doesn't even have a reading for how much you, uh, Chinese tech protectionism they have. And guess what? It's actually worked brilliantly for China. And they have a, they out of the top 10 tech companies in the world, six of them are Chinese. I'd say that's a pretty amazing feat considering that 10 years ago, all of the top 10 tech companies were US. So clearly China's on a tear. If you mean any stat you look at, amount of venture investing in China, um, amount of uh, you know tech companies and all these things. I mean, the Chinese tech sector is strong and it's because the Chinese government basically didn't allow in any U.S. tech companies. Um, and if they did, they'd just steal their IP and all these kinds of other things that we're all pretty familiar with at this point. So should the U.S. ban TikTok outright? Eh, I doubt they would do something that aggressive. But the U.S. could do something in the middle, which would be kind of what China is somewhat mandating U.S. companies do today, but rightly so, they're still pretty reticent to actually trust the Chinese government. It's kind of an oxymoron trusting the Chinese government. But you come to the U.S. and you're a Chinese tech company, okay, all of your data now needs to live in U.S.-based servers. And the U.S. can put some monitoring on if that data is now uh, leaving the U.S. to China. And so now you're putting privacy and controls into what what data is going back to China? Um, there's a. I was at another conference today, Bloomberg's conference. You had Jim Coulter, co-founder of TPG, one of the uh, largest and most prominent private equity firms in the world. Um, he had a great chart showing the different countries and how they felt about data localization and whether they would let data leave their country uh, or not, or keep it restricted in their respective domain. And you can kind of guess that China and the U.S. are at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. The U.S. was probably one of the lightest or least regulated countries in the world in this map that they had. There are select industries like the defense industry where the U.S. government puts very strict data uh, requirements around um, if you know what companies can have access to that data and, and, and where it can go, can it leave, etc., um, on the other end of the spectrum was China, which basically nothing can leave China um, unless they approve it, which I don't see why they really ever would. TikTok could be one of those scenarios or Chinese tech companies that fit a certain level of prominence or scale could be one of those scenarios where 
Um, there is now regulation around mandating that the servers are here, that you have personnel here, um, that you have all your people here in the United States. So from a job standpoint, um, from an assimilation standpoint, from a being able to hold people accountable standpoint, um, you need people here. And then from a data standpoint that you're putting uh, more controls and monitoring and regulation around that. I think that's a pretty reasonable reaction to this. Um, and I think certainly in the grand scheme of things compared to how U.S. tech companies have been treated in China, this is a, you know, uh, this is this is isn't anything even in comparison of how U.S. tech companies have been treated. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how this goes. Not even really that familiar. Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. I think they are reviewing uh, ByteDance's acquisition of Musical.ly slash TikTok. And they're saying that never received clearance from this committee, which means they're now able to review it, even though we are um, over two years later after after the transaction completed. So um, I guess that they it's still under their purview to put some kind of uh, rules or regulation around this. Interesting. Um, so last topic for the day. I was at this Bloomberg conference today and we had uh, the CEO of XPO Logistics there. XPO is the largest uh, logistics provider in the United States, has been run by this uh, beast of a entrepreneur and CEO named Brad Jacobs. This guy has done over, I think, 600 acquisitions, doing massive M&A and consolidation to bring XPO, amongst of other th- a number of other things that he's clearly done quite successfully, to put XPO in the position that it's in today, um, which is probably not only one of the biggest, but one of the most um, aggressive or mature technology-driven logistics providers in the United States. So he was mentioning a couple interesting stats about his industry. One stat really stuck out to me, where he said that 25% of the loads uh, that are in trucks are basically empty, right? That doesn't mean that you have an empty truck running around the place, but it means that this truck has excess ca- capacity and that that's a huge uh, inefficiency in the industry. And because you don't have data transparency and you have a lot of data in different silos and it's very fragmented, that's really the biggest reason why this inefficiency exists. Makes sense. The trucking, the trucking industry is about $177 billion dollars um, so it's pretty big. Now, here's the problem with the trucking industry. Here's why the trucking industry won't really fall to immediate disruption from an UberX model. You now have a number of players from uh, Convoy to Transfix to uh, Uber Freight, which we've covered many times on the show, to um, Amazon Flex, its own kind of version of this. And you now have XPO, JB Hunt, uh, DB Shanker, even a number of the traditional logistics players, um, UPS included, that are trying to do these two-sided marketplaces. What they say is I connect a shipper with a carrier. Carrier is basically just a, a trucker or a trucking company. And, and it's kind of like Uber for trucking. Here's why that won't work. Here's why it won't hit the scale um, that Uber did. When, If you remember when Uber started, it started as Uber Black. And it was connecting you to black car drivers. And that did okay, but it wasn't disruptive. And why wasn't it disruptive? Because what platforms do such a good job, uh, why it's a disruptive business model, if we hearken back to Clay Christensen and, and, and what he classifies as a truly disruptive innovation, is really can you have 
not just consumer side disruption, but supply side disruption. And what you see with many platforms, every platform that's very successful, you have a supply side network effect. And they're able to fundamentally change the supply side of the equation in the industry, which therefore then completely upends the, say, traditional economics down to the consumer. What do I mean? Um, when Uber went to Uber X, they unlocked all this latent supply. Now anyone with a car and a few extra hours could be a driver. And now I'm competing with taxis directly, but I'm competing with taxis by bringing a whole new swath of supply. And I'm using network effects and a marketplace model and technology and all of these things to pair up uh, a customer with a uh, UberX car driver, basically laying waste to the entire taxi industry. The problem in the trucking industry is that there's actually a trucker shortage. Um, there's been a trucker shortage for many, many years. and you don't have this idea of some kind of latent untapped pocket of supply that you can just magically tap into or create that gives you such a, a different uh, core transaction, right? Different model consumer to producer. And so for all of these players that are doing these two-sided marketplaces, I think uh, maybe Uber freights around $500 million in annualized throughput or Convoy or Transfix, Transfix they're somewhere around $300 million. Got the stats here, but you're not going to get that exponential return. Why? Um, because you have that shortage of supply, what you need to do is take a different approach. And the different approach is to embrace a three-sided marketplace. This is truly disruptive to how the trucking industry has operated. Because who is the third side of the stool here? That's the three PLs. There are, I believe, over 15,000 3PLs just in the United States. Highly fragmented group. These are third-party logistics providers. This could be a mom-and-pop group of a few people that are just coordinating, or essentially think of them as the human middleman between the shipper and the carrier. <clears throat> but very often there could be, you know, there's a sliding scale of complexity in the um, <clears throat> shipper world, right? You have some deliveries and orders that are more complicated that maybe you need uh, goods dropped off or to, they need to hold over at a warehouse or you have different complexities to them. You have multiple moving parts. Not everything fits into the two-sided marketplace box, A. B, given the fragmentation of the three PLs and the fact that you have a few large players, but those few large players don't command an outsized amount of market share in the industry. No one controls 30%. Uh, of the industry. You have large linear players, you have large traditional players, but it's still very fragmented with tens of thousands of 3PLs. So you commoditize the complement. Every tech company, every platform tech monopoly, it's the most common strategy in the playbook, which is to say, you give away the technology for free in exchange for access to the ecosystem. We've seen Google do this a million times. We're seeing them do this currently with Waymo, <clears throat> to get OEMs, car manufacturers on board, to get access and to give them the Android automotive, their operating system to get into the vehicle. Uh, you've just seen the sto this story play itself out at infinitum. Now, let's look at China. Who is already doing this? As we've seen, particularly with many marketplace models, uh, Chinese marketplaces tend to just have evolved more quickly um, than what we've seen with U.S. marketplaces. So I have two examples of this. One is this For You Trucking Company. It's founded in March of 2015. 
And basically, this article outlines three stages for For You to get a start. And in stage one, For You served as a platform and accumulated the most valuable thing historical data, transaction prices, vehicle parameters, all this information, right? And how do they do this? For You chose to work with intermediaries in the transport sector so that drivers can get orders via agents, that'd be like 3PLs, and conventional intermediaries can get more orders, right? Um, so that was step one. Step two, then they started to go, uh, this was the transitionary step for them to arrive at where they could now be more end-to-end and go directly from shipper to carrier um, and start to eliminate some of the agents in the middle. So the end state is that you want to get to a two-sided marketplace. The question is, how do you get there and how do you get there at scale? With five to 10 well-funded competitors in the U.S. trucking, um, you know, two-sided marketplace space, what you're seeing is you're seeing them have good growth. But what you are missing is the exponential growth. What you're missing is the winner-take-all dynamic. And so um, this other company here, which I'm going to bring up, is called uh, Monbang. I'm butchering it. Um, but basically, Manbang is the largest Uber freight two-sided marketplace in China. A multi-multi-billion dollar company. They just raised $2 billion last year. Um, and so this was interesting, though. This just came out over the summer. It says, Manbang will open its intelligent dispatch and trading systems to freight users both at home and abroad, as well as third-party logistics firms. That's the three PLs. What you are seeing now, there's actually a trucker shortage in China as well. In the earlier days, China didn't have as much of a trucker shortage. Now, China also has a trucker shortage. So when you have restricted supply on the trucker side, what you need to do is look at alternative sources of supply, i.e. enabling your biggest competitors, which are small three PLs. Small three PLs don't have the resources to invest $500 $500 million in technology, like a JB Hunt, an XPO, a Shanker do, and, and are actively investing the money in that space. The problem is, what the tech monopolies are doing, I haven't officially released this information, but what I've heard from little birdies is that these companies want to see growth at all costs. There is now rising competition in the space from tech startups, like a convoy and a transfix, you now have the traditional players doing two-sided marketplaces. And so you have tech conglomerates. There's mainly two of them, Amazon and Uber. And what they're saying is, we're either going to win or we're getting out of this. And for them to win, they say, we win at all costs. And guess what? Uh, Uber Freight is investing about $50 million per quarter into their business. And this model actually is in many times complementary to what they're currently doing today. The whole point of this is, let's say you now embrace the three PLs. Can you get access to that 25% of latent supply that Brad was talking about? And the answer is absolutely. If you can harness the supply either directly to the carrier or via the three PL, but now you own the most dominant three-sided marketplace in trucking and logistics, 
And eventually you can figure out long-term, mid to long-term, like what that other company did here for you, to say, well, eventually we're going to start phasing out the smaller 3PLs. And oh, guess what? We're going to start to compete more aggressively with, guess who? The producers. As we've covered many times on the show, as platforms become that monopoly status, they take advantage of supply. Who is the first supply to get squeezed, as 4U has shown us? It's the 3PLs. But the 3PLs are a mechanism to let you win and to let you get the winner-take-all dynamic. Otherwise, if everyone's just going to compete with the two-sided marketplace model, you're not going to have that breakout success win. So we'll see. I know that some of the players are already looking at rolling out a three-sided marketplace model in the United States. I think when that happens, um, it's just much harder to play catch-up on that if you're not first or second to market with something like that. I think the tech companies at this point will be able to do that quite successfully. So um, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.